You're listening to the second episode of Facing It, a podcast about climate grief, eco-anxiety, and what it means to be human in the age of climate crisis. Dr. Jennifer Atkinson will guide you on a journey through the emotional toll of ecological loss and mass extinction, and offer strategies for moving from despair to action in our fight for a livable future. This series is produced by Intrasonics UK with the music and sound recordings of Cryon. This is a podcast about climate change, so I already know what someone's going to say. Why are you talking about feelings when we should be focusing on science or practical solutions? I hear versions of this question a lot. Back in 2017, when I started teaching a seminar on climate grief, it set off a media storm that turned my life upside down for months because I wasn't sticking with the standard script for addressing scientific topics. I'd created the class to help college students navigate the emotional toll of ecological loss and develop strategies to stay engaged in climate work without burning out. When local and national news reported on it, most people were supportive, but there was also an intense backlash. The criticism fell into two camps. One line came from climate deniers who mocked the course as a joke and a textbook example of liberal indoctrination in today's universities. Internet trolls flooded the paper's comment section and filled my email and voicemail accounts with hateful responses. The University of Washington, where I teach, temporarily removed my phone number from its webpage to protect me from more harassment. I didn't care about being mocked myself, but I cringed at the hostility toward our students, who were called wimpy and coddled babies, told to grow up, and insulted as liberal snowflakes. One commenter asked, Do the students roll out nap mats and curl up in the fetal position with their blankies and pacifiers while listening to her lectures? Another proposed we rename the class Snowflakes 101, how to make any issue seem like Armageddon while you continue to live in your mother's basement. But there was a second line of accusations I took more seriously, which came from people who do support climate action and environmental protections. That group identified as allies, but argued that climate change is a serious problem demanding clear-headed solutions, and we should be focusing on facts and reason instead of feelings. There are dozens of reasons this thinking is deeply flawed and even detrimental to the climate movement's success in mobilizing public action. First is the assumption that reason and emotion are mutually exclusive. In many cases, these modes of response align with each other. Having an emotional response seems rational when you're facing an existential threat like the collapse of Earth's life support systems. What's irrational are messages to stay calm and maintain the status quo, Now that we find ourselves well into climate overtime, one could argue that it's dispassionate or measured responses that are unreasonable. As a student of mine put it, panic seems pretty logical when the house is on fire. 
But there's much more to this emotion versus reason dynamic when we talk about our climate crisis. Anger, hope, anxiety, and love are constantly shaping our perceptions of the world and can motivate us to act or shut down and retreat. So to better understand these dynamics, this episode takes up a very basic question. In facing today's climate challenge, why do emotions matter? Since humans first started using images and language to tell stories, they've enhanced their effect by appealing to our sense of fear, desire, sadness, and wonder. Even scientists use these techniques. Rachel Carson, the author of Silent Spring and one of the most influential scientists of the 20th century, exposed the deadly effects of overusing pesticides in the 1960s by filling her book with nightmarish imagery and passionate emotional appeals. And it worked. Silent Spring became an international bestseller and led to a nationwide ban on DDT, the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and the launch of the modern environmental movement. I read Carson's book back in high school and vividly remember the horror I felt learning of suburban families doused with DDT, children with birth defects, and the near extinction of the bald eagle in North America. One passage on the effects of aerial pesticide spraying was double underlined, where Carson described a, quote, silent landscape that was deserted by all living things. I also circled language like a strange blight, an evil spell, and a shadow of death falling over American towns. This was not the writing of a standard scientific account. In fact, the famous opening chapter reads more like a gothic novel or the script of a horror film, playing on readers' psyches by making us experience the agony of dying birds, the betrayal of discovering that familiar characters are actually killers, and the fear in learning of toxins hiding in our homes and gardens. To be clear, Carson was a painstaking researcher and based Silent Spring on years of meticulous data collection. But the chemical industry seized on the book's emotional tone to discredit it, and launched personal attacks against Carson as a hyper-emotional bird lover, a hysterical woman, and an unstable spinster with an affinity for cats. In the end, those charges couldn't sway the public, and faith in the chemical industry was irreparably damaged. Carson boldly stood by both her scientific research and the manner in which she presented it. As she once said, it is not half so important to know as to feel. In our current age of climate consequences, those words may have even greater meaning. Anyone following today's environmental news is bombarded with incomprehensible statistics and timescales that are hard to process on a cognitive level. When we hear that a million species are at risk of extinction, or that hundreds of millions of people could become climate refugees, or that the impacts of our action could play out for millennia, it's almost impossible for the human mind to process those numbers. How many of us can think in terms of a million? But we can all feel a sense of grief or outrage when confronted with that loss. Long after we learn of a family that's lost their home or see the image of a sea turtle strangled by fishing nets, what stays with us is the sense of anguish and tragedy, not the statistics used to represent them. 
There's another passage I remember from Silent Spring, and looking at my old copy, I found it underlined and marked with a folded page. It explained that insecticides were not a selective tool killing only the target species, but toxins that poisoned all life with which they came in contact. Residents in the Midwest had reported house cats dying agonizing deaths and a meadowlark someone found that had lost the muscular coordination to fly or stand, but continued to beat its wings while lying on its side. But it was Carson's image of a poisoned squirrel that had burned itself into my memory. She wrote, The head and neck were outstretched, and the mouth contained dirt, suggesting that the animal had been biting at the ground. Carson then closed with this question to readers. By acquiescing in an act that causes such suffering to a living creature, who among us is not diminished as a human being? I think this is why we need a vocabulary for talking about the emotional toll of ecological loss. Those feelings are already there, but we ignore their legitimacy by refusing to name them. Terms like eco-grief and climate anxiety help us conceptualize something that otherwise seems invisible. Understanding the emotional dimensions of climate change also gives us insight into what makes this crisis so unique. People with misgivings about the whole concept of climate despair have asked how it differs from any other form of chronic anxiety or depression. It's a fair question, since we all go through dark times when we lose a loved one or experience other hard chapters in life. But I think the sheer scale and complexity of our environmental crisis leaves people feeling overwhelmed in a unique way. Climate change isn't just one thing you can isolate, like sea level rise or melting glaciers. When you pull at any string in this issue, you find it tangled with everything else. That's why researchers characterize climate disruption as an all-encompassing threat that will affect every part of our lives. Public health, agriculture, inequality and racial injustice, military conflicts and interpersonal violence, the refugee crisis, disappearing wildlife, the survival of oceans and forests and coastal cities, mental health in the wake of disasters. That's why our climate paralysis is worse than many situations involving personal tragedies. When you're staring down an existential threat that's planetary in scale and whose consequences will likely play out for thousands of years, it's easy to feel like you're living in a bad dream where everyone around you is sleepwalking through the apocalypse. And for young people, there's also a deep sense of betrayal to wrestle with. The generation before them knew about the science, going back at least 30 years when NASA scientist Jim Hansen testified before Congress to warn the world about climate threats. But we didn't act. In fact, every year since then, carbon emissions have gone up. But taking emotions seriously not only helps us understand the fear and anxiety from climate change, it also provides insight into why we fight for our world in the first place. Nature is our home, and not just the home in which our bodies evolved, but also the birthplace of our primordial brains and earliest feelings. Our psychological makeup is rooted in those bonds with nature, developed during the Pleistocene epoch, 
and a vast body of research is now revealing how the human mind adapted itself to problems and experiences encountered during the million-plus years spent as hunter-gatherers. Evolutionary psychology shows how these interactions became hardwired responses over time. And so even though countless cultural factors influence us today, you still see that ancient relation between mind and environment expressed in human traits like our enjoyment of looking at bodies of water, the elevated mood we feel in green spaces or when we have a view of trees, in children's love of hiding and predisposition to climb trees, in our fascination with wild animals and our instinctive fear of snakes and spiders. These feelings continue to exert a powerful influence, even in the age of smartphones and air travel. Which is hardly surprising when you remember that our modern era has lasted only a blink of a moment compared to the vast expanse of time we spent living in and being shaped by primordial environments. To put this in context, Michael McCarthy points out that we've been staring at screens for a single generation and living in cities for just a few but we were farmers for 500 generations and hunter-gatherers for 50,000 generations or more. As he wrote, we may have left the natural world, but the natural world has not left us. That's why Rachel Carson didn't just focus on the horror of our ecological assaults, but also the beauty and intricacies of nature, knowing that these would resonate with something deep inside her readers. As she once put it, the more clearly we can focus our attention on the wonders and realities of the universe about us, the less taste we shall have for destruction. Reigniting that sense of connection is always possible because it lives in the deepest part of our psyche. Perhaps tapping into those emotional bonds, both our love for the natural world and the grief we feel as it's diminished, perhaps that could offer our best chance to change course before more is lost. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot to learn from the statistics and formulas used to analyze our world, and we shouldn't discount their crucial role in sounding the alarm as the lines on climate graphs have taken a sharp turn and launched skyward like missiles. But nor should we discount the power of our emotional lives to convert love and wonder into action on behalf of nature. In feeling, there is ancient wisdom. Walt Whitman captured this truth generations ago in a poem describing his awe in gazing at the stars, an experience that no scientific equation could ever match. You might know the poem. Here's how it goes. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, When I, sitting, heard the astronomer, where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars.'" 